The Lord be with you. And also with you. Holy Father, we come before you uh, grateful that you have made us your own in Christ Jesus, living members of his body that um, not metaphorically, uh, not fictively, truly participate in your very triune life. Uh, we bless you. Uh, we're grateful. Uh, and we ask that in the power of the Spirit, Holy Father, you would continue to conform us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that you would um, open up um, your very bosom to us as we share in the mind of Jesus Christ, that you would um, burn uh, and melt away uh, all that impedes us from being fully in, uh, in love with you, on mission with you, uh, that you'd bring about holy repentance uh, where we fall short of that, that you would increase desire and love to uh, follow you. And it should make us wise. Lord, we ask for the gift of wisdom and discernment uh, as we seek to live uh, faithfully and well on message and on mission uh, in the world. As we co-mission with you, we, um, it's complex and it takes uh, courage and boldness and perseverance. And Lord, we desperately need you. We ask that you would rid us of any kind of inhibition or uh, embarrassment or shame from uh, with open hands and full hearts, uh, confessing just that. Uh, we have a childlike need for you, and we pray that you would meet us. Uh, be glorified uh, here uh, in this place in our in our company. Uh, and let us let us do good theological thinking right before your face in your company and in your presence. Uh, we ask that you would teach us. Um, we praise you in Christ's holy name. Amen. All right, you guys, I'm going to share my screen, okay? Um, I, you should. I, I know um, Christina sent out all the notes, but I'll just, I'll put them up here. I think that's a good way to do it. Um, but be, yeah, let me put, I'll put them up right now. I just can't always see all of you when I do that. I like to see your faces. Okay, I see some. Um, what we talked about last week, really, um, really um, forthrightly, think about this, um, what we're going to talk about today as this, the, the flip side of that coin, the, the second phase of that conversation we had last week, neither Jew nor Greek, right? When we talk about uh, the, the very nature and mission of the church, uh, and in that context, discuss ethnicity, ethnic diversity, kingdom diversity, and race, um, or, by, or by one blood, right? That's, that's another way I talked about it. By, by one blood, we've been made, by one haimatas, we've been made, and by one, and in one, we've been redeemed. Um, we talked last time, and one of the things I really wanted to put before you is um, a real need, pressing need for this time, is that we talk out of a scriptural, ecclesial, creedal center, uh, uh, whose center is that triune God of the gospel, right? And we, and we, and we um, self-consciously move from the one to the many and follow that hermeneutic of scripture as we think about what it means to share in the life of the triune God of the gospel, the one holy Catholic church, and live out our baptismal identity, right? Live out our baptismal identity, that one that, that, one that says any kind of self or merely socially constructed identity we have has to um, enter into the waters of baptism for crucifixion and from out of it, right? Uh, be re reconstituted in Jesus Christ. 
and relativize to him so that so that you know the way Paul talks that um, no no Jew and no Greek no male no female no slave nor free the class sex and ethnic um, lineage questions have to be relativized so that they can be sanctified and then upheld rightly relative to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in that context, let's talk about critical race theory. Uh, and I'm not going to make lots of assumptions here. Uh, what I want to do is lay it out. And then I want to really open up for dialogue. I think this is the, the kind of thing that we should really, um, uh, I, I want to encourage lots of engagement uh, from everybody here as we work through these things. They're, they're quite complex. Um, and so let's do it like that. I've got a couple of texts here. Want us to have them in mind as we do this. Um, the epistle to the Hebrews, right? After um, talking about, you know, um, being grounded in the fundamental realities of the faith, now we want to move on. It's, it's natural, right, that um, we don't move past pure milk of the gospel. Maybe that's the way it's said there. Um, we don't move past that like we outgrow it. We always need that, but we want to we want to supplement and complement with solid food, right? To grow up into the full stature of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews says one of the ways that happens is we uh, our powers of discernment are exercised by way of practice. That's a, that's the way you get facility in anything, from learning your ABCs to tying your shoes to learning string theory, right? You've you've, you've got to get practice at it, and so we need constant practice. Scripture says. Um, of discernment um, by living in this world and learning how to distinguish good from evil. You need, need to know how to do that. Uh, to live in this world uh, that is uh, suffused with the powers of the spirit of the age, so on and so forth, not be assimilated to it, but actually be engaged with it. Uh, we need discernment for that. All the while, knowing that there's no other foundation we can lay, right? We can really engage because that foundation laid is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we can do that um, and this, gosh, I think this bears so, so readily to what we're talking about. As disciples of our Lord, who has given us not a spirit of timidity and fear? That's one of the um, salient features of the spirit of this age, I think, fear and anxiety. Hasn't given us a spirit of fear, um, but of power. Right, of love and of self-control. And so when we talk about this, I think by nature almost, this, this conversation, uh, especially as it's said in this, you know, in, in our cultural context, it can be volatile. I want to I do everything we can to diffuse it of that and to, um, you know, in this space, um, have the kind of warmest exchange we can so that we're all um, fortified by it. So that being said, what I want to do by way of by way of starting is just get our bearings on what C CRT is, critical race theory. And I want to do that by using the words of some of its foremost advocates, uh, some of its uh, people who are almost at the ground level of, of, um, of its development. So let's start here. Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, lawyer, activist, professor at UCLA in the School of Law. She is... Um, one of the leading scholars in this field, and, and many attribute her to being, you know, not, not the sole architect, but a leading architect of what we call intersectionality, which is um, an implicate of and comes out of CRT. She says this real briefly, but um, it's helpful. Critical race theory is a practice, a habit of thought, we might say, right? Just like we saw in the scripture above, a habit of thought, uh, a way of seeing how 
the fiction of race has been trans has, has been transformed into concrete racial inequities in our culture, right? So what we have here is CRT is a lens. We, maybe we can say it's an analytical tool above all things. It's an interpretive paradigm, a grid by which we can see um, how, interestingly, we'll get back to this, um, but she says a fiction, right? The fiction of race. Uh, we talked about that a little bit last week when we talked about ta Coates and even John Perkins in some way. The fiction of race has been reified, concretized, right? Um, into, um, we'll, you'll see it as, as we go, but um, system, systemic and structural racial inequities in our culture. Right, that's what CRT, in a nutshell, wants to get at. <clears throat> Let me expand it a little bit. This is a definition or description. It's, it's too long for definition, but it's a description um, from that. Uh, it's a it's a it's a focus group within the UCLA School of Public Affairs, a focus group on critical race studies, uh, and and. Crenshaw's fingerprints are all over this too. She's a, a, a big mover and player in this one. And it says, yes, there's lots of things here that I want to unpack, but um, so let's work through it, you know, somewhat slowly. CRT recognizes that racism, right, racism, the racializing of the world is ingrained in the very fabric and system of American society. It's a constituent element of our culture, she, uh, this would say. The individual racists need not exist. Let's just get at that right and, and face that right up front. If any of you are familiar with Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, um, <clears throat> makes this point very strongly. <clears throat> Most of us, uh, I think, would say, wait a, wait, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not overtly prejudiced um, against, or do I intentionally in any way seek to oppress people um, by virtue of human hair differentiation for me? I don't do that. CRT would say that's actually not the point, right? Um, individual racists isn't, isn't really quite the issue, but rather that this is an institutional reality, right? Inst the, the institutional foundations of our culture are racist. Um, and therefore, by, um, by the air we breathe, um, we're uh, catechized, if you will, we're conformed to this. It's pervasive in the dominant culture. You read here, right, majority culture, white culture in our, in our situation. This is the analytical lens that critical race theory uses in examining exist existing power structures. That's really, really huge for critical race theory and more basic still, critical theory. Um, modern critical theory wants to see how um, the power structures of our culture are oppressive. Critical race theory identifies that these power structures are based on white privilege, white supremacy, systematically um, empowering and, and privileging majority culture, dominant culture, white culture, which therefore consequently perpetuates the margin, marginalization of people of color, minority culture, in, in this case, ethnic minority. CRT rejects the traditions of liberalism and meritocracy. Um, what we're getting at here is um, liberalism or the, or the way that um, 
20th century liberal America has, has historically tried to deal with um, racial inequities uh, in our culture is, is to try to perpetuate and inculcate a kind of colorblindness, right? To put a real point on it, right? I, I have a dream that people will no longer judge one another by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, right? That type of colorblindness. CRT does, is, is moved way past that. The traditions of liberalism and meritocracy. Legal discourse says that the law is neutral and colorblind. However, CRT challenges this legal quote unquote truth, right? It's not a truth per se, but what it is, is it's a, um, a function of power sought to oppress. That's the idea there. By examining liberalism and meritocracy as a vehicle for self-interest, power, and privilege, that which perpetuates majority dominance and majority culture. CRT also recognizes that liberalism and meritocracy are often stories, narratives, heard from those with wealth, with power, with privilege, and what they therefore do is instantiate and perpetuate that wealth, that power, that privilege. These stories paint a false picture of meritocracy. That idea that um, if you work hard, if you're a couple couple standards above the uh, the, the the mean of um, you know high level responsibility, um, intelligence, industry, um, that you can make it, right? That you can overcome um, uh, impediments and that you can make it in our in our culture. These stories paint a false picture of meritocracy, i.e. that everyone who works hard can attain wealth and power and privilege while ignoring the systemic inequalities that institutional racism provides. So in other words, liberalism and meritocracy, those traditions in our culture, perpetuate that narrative of hard work and industry as a road to opportunity and privilege and do that in order to suppress systemic inequalities and institutional racism. Do you guys want to say anything so far? I can only see a couple of you, but. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm just, as you're, as you're saying all this, I'm, I'm just thinking like, wow, we're, we're all about to go on Thanksgiving break soon. Yeah. Um, and where where these conversations will for sure happen, um, yeah. at least in my context. And yeah. I'm finding yeah. the phrase critical race theory seems to be trickling down into um, kind of your your average person is becoming aware of it and yeah. and deploying it in ways that I'm like, um, is that is that how critical race theory is actually understood? Um, so it seems to be phrase so much the content of like yeah. what it what it actually stands for yeah and I, I find that like everything you're saying i find that i i internalize it and accept it um but when i'm pressed for like examples um in particular i'm going to go to a context that's going to say no this is all false there actually is no racism this is an invention of the left um, mm -hmm. It's a way of keeping black voters um, on the left and et cetera, et cetera. And so there's this grand narrative about how this is actually a fabrication in itself. 
Yeah. Um, and I'm hard pressed for like examples. Um, Christina has read a book, um, um, has read the, the new Jim Crow. And that, that book has given us like a lot of really concrete examples, but I find that it's kind of hard to put your finger on, um, in, an action where the motive is racism or not. Like for example, um, when pastor Michael Wright told the story of the, uh, the, um, ambulance driver who walked slowly over to the boy who was, um, you know, losing air and needed oxygen and, and like that whole scene, uh, people who were looking at it were like, this is this racism. Um, and, I just find that, um, you know, it's, it's difficult at times to like, you know, if I were to say that same story to someone else who, who thinks that this is an invention of the left in particular, they would just say like, no, it's just some other explanation would, would mm -hmm. be, would do just as well. And it's, I an left it's an isolated incident with, with three lazy ambulance drivers, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's what they would say. So, um, do you have some encouragement, maybe some more like concrete uh, things that we can say or? Um... Yeah, oh, absolutely. What I, want to, what I want to do actually, Matt, is I want to, I want to give us, you know, in, in the words of the people who this is most dear to, right? That's where you always want to start with something. Um, and then I want, to, I want to work out some convictions. And then I want to, I want to think, um, you know, at more of a, a ground level and how this, how this trickles down, right? Like, like not everyone needs to be reading primary sources in Freud, um, who thinks that equ equilibrium is the gospel, um, to run around thinking that balance, right? That's the way we, we would talk about it is, you know, a priority, something like that. It's in the air you breathe. And so how does it trickle down and how does it work out? I do want to do that and how we can kind of try to inculcate a, a hermeneutic of, of empathy here. What we can say um, as Christians, rather th that, that's more constructive than this is absolute garbage, <laughs> right? Yeah, let's do, yeah, hold that thought for just a minute. I think that's, that's absolutely wonderful. <clears throat> uh, let, me, let me give you a definition that, that, that brings us out, teases us out a little bit more um, in terms of the Encyclopedia of Diversity and Social Justice. CRT argues right from the get-go that the access, right, um, the, the orbit of American social life is fundamentally constructed in race. Now, Matt, when you hear these, uh, or the people you're talking about, when they hear these, these are these are um, these are like metaphysical, ontological, all-encompassing things, right? They're big, and the 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 reaction there is to say, like, "Are you kidding me? Like, this is a hermeneutic of reality? No way, right? No way." Um, but one of the reasons I want to I want to I want to put it out there, and that is, I think, a criticism of this is that we can say. Um, even where I see elements of truth here, and I want to acknowledge them, um, is this really a hermeneutic of reality? <laughs> is it really that? Um, where we would say biblically, um, uh, all things hold together in Jesus Christ, and he's preeminent in all things. Uh, I, I would be quite slow to say um, that um, um, our life is fundamentally constructed in race. Right, that's a big statement, but I want to I want to put it out there because that's the way it, at this level at least it operates. As a result, all of the the, the kind of the, the 
contours and scaffoldings of our culture, economically, politically, historically, we could add to that, right? Um, institutionally, educationally, psychologically, financially, well, it's got economics here. All of those are arrangements that social actors have, the institutions and social processes that are all race-based, race-based. CRT argues that as a whole, this idea has been purposely ignored, subdued, marginalized by dominant culture. Um, and there's structural blindness there. And there's, as we can see, lots of repercussions for it. Now, one of the things you could say there is things that are so big, if it's the case, or to the extent that um, this is the case, it's hard sometimes to see the forest from the trees. If this is, if this, to the extent this is the case, it can be hard to see. CRT says that's why we need this critical lens to do it. Now, one of the important tenets here, I keep on with, with Thompson, is the assertion that race is socially constructed. It's a social construct. Race is a, race is a, is a um, it's not rooted in biology. Let's, let's say it's something like that. It's not rooted in biology. Um, it's socially, I'll just leave it at that, sorry. Um, socially constructed yet denotes explicitly and implicitly how power is used and appropriated in society. Okay, so all those to say, this is what we're getting at, CRT. It's an analytical tool. What it wants to do is help us to see, expose, and correct um, the reality, the ongoing role of racism in our culture, right? Um, racism, which is an offspring, as we talked about last time, as Ta-Nehisi Coates would say, of race, right, in our contemporary culture. Let's think about a couple of the, the, the big convictions here and think about them too like um like matt just said there's theory right there's how this operates um at elite educational institutions where this is critical theory in general is percolated for you know 60 years or so what's happening around the 2010s is critical theory in general has just exploded into popular culture it's exploded uh, as i talked about last time in all kinds of um there's there's new verbiage and new vocabulary surrounding it, right? Um, gaslighting, um, checking privilege, you know, so on and so forth. There's a whole verbiage around it. Um, and so what it looks like up here at the level of theory, Matt, and then what it looks like at the Thanksgiving dinner table isn't always the same, but you need the theory to get at it. The notion right off the bat that human beings are a genus whose who's, um, various racial species, uh, of, made up of various racial species, this wants to say no to that. I think that's a real strength. Race, at least thinking about race in terms of hue and hair, right, is pretty modern, it's pretty fluid, and it's pretty arbitrary. I think that's a, that's a strong point. That's a real strong point. Now, how that comes down to um, certain ears, though, um, it needs some clarification. Some people might hear that and say, oh, wait a minute, are they, they, are they arguing for some kind of a biological essentialism or something like that? No, they're not. Um, it's a social construct, but social con socially constructed identities are fine, right? 
um, the argument is race isn't a biological category, and that's fine. There are no universal categories of humanness, right? So for, for moderns, right, this is, a, this is where post-modernity comes in. And for moderns, they hear, oh, okay, race is a social construct. Maybe we're on the same page. Maybe, maybe not, depending on what you mean by that. Um, but the point here is that, uh, for instance, um, who's in what race has been really shifted around over, over, the, over, over time, right? So I'm from Metro Detroit. Uh, French Canadians were seen as um, a different race than Anglo-Saxons, right? Um, in antebellum America, Northerners and Southerners, um, different races. We're talking about white people, right? Um, Northerners and Southerners, different races. Um, Hispanics have been seen as white and not white in our culture, about six or seven different iterations of that, depending on what, what's going on and what's, what's trying to happen, what's trying to be you know, established there. Um, there was a big conversation in the early 1900s in America about whether or not Irish people were white, <laughs> right? Or Polish people were white. Big waves of Irish and Polish uh, immigrants in the early 1900s. Uh, into a majority culture, the question was bantered around seriously. Are these people of a different race than us? This is the point of CRT, is that race is highly fluid, quite arbitrary. It doesn't mean that therefore they'd want to say, then let's get rid of it and let's go back to colorblindness. That's, 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 that's not what's being said. But there is an acknowledgement right off the bat um, that that is the case. But with it, for CRT, comes the, comes the assertion of wanting to get rid of universals. Does that make sense to you guys? Racism is very, very, very real. It's ubiquitous. It's constant. It's relentless in everyday life in American society. So Will or Matt, sitting around the dinner table at Thanksgiving, um, <laughs> Right, um, and, and a, a strong advocate of CRT might say, you have the privilege of, um, of insulating yourself from these things, um, and that in and of itself is, is a part of that power and privilege that allows you as best you can not to see these things or put yourself in a situation in life where they're, they're, um, they're in your face and you're confronted with them, right? By the way, my Thanksgivings are a lot like that too. <laughs> A lot like that. Uh, racism's ingrained, it's deeply ingrained, right? It's part of the fabric. It's constituent. It's embedded in our societal landscape, say advocates of CRT. Racism's a structural problem, a structural feature. It's an anatomical, sociopolitical element of our existence. And what it does is it systemically disadvantages and disempowers minority groups. And it systemically privileges and empowers majority groups. Um, it is what we might call that power and privilege whiteness, right? That's another neologism in the last, um, you know, 10, 15 years, whiteness. Now, whiteness doesn't mean um, Britishness or Germanness or something like that. So in other words, you know, I'm proud to be Swedish means something very, very different in popular discourse than I'm proud to be white. <laughs> White means majority culture, majority dominance, um, systemic oppression, right? Whiteness. And so CRT would see 
um, you guys have all done, or many of you have done theological studies. CRT would see whiteness um, as an issue even in theological hermeneutics, right, or biblical hermeneutics. There's, there's a white way of reading scripture, a white way of doing theology, a way that perpetuates whiteness, um, which only gets back to and, and illustrates this. This is deeply embedded in our culture. Systemic racism, given that it's so deeply embedded, is often hidden, right? It's often mass and it's often coded. So we speak in we speak in coded language, CRT would say, and coded actions so as to perpetuate it and um, suppress it or ignore it, right? It, it, overtly or implicitly, we, we do that. So part of this hermeneutical analytical tool that CRT wishes to be is to expose what's coded, right? Um, to bring it to light, to deconstruct it, to overturn it. Make sure you see that right in these last couple of sentences. Internalized dominance, internalized oppression. Will or uh, Matt, when we were talking with uh, Pastor Michael Wright, he said a couple of things that I think are really helpful about that get at this a little bit. He said, you know, statistically speaking, um, um, blacks are much more um, open to following white leadership than whites are to following black leadership. You remember that? That that would that would be that would be a part of this, um, that type of that type of an idea, this internalized sense of dominance and oppression, or or how it plays out sometimes, this internalized sense of guilt and fragility. If you read Robin D'Angelo again, so the, here here are the task of CRT to deconstruct commonplaces. You guys know what that is. Like, like the nose in your face, things you don't think about that are just a part of your, the warp and woof of your everyday life that uh, you don't tend to think about. CRT wants to critique these, um, to expose whatever racism can be found and it can be found all over the place, right? So as to do what? Decrease domination, increase freedom. Right, that's what critical theory in general wants to do, decrease domination, increase freedom. Part of CRT being a hermeneutic, right, it wants to revisit and revise the telling of history. The idea is um, American history um, is constructed, um, the narrative of it is constructed to promote white supremacy. Um, so are some of the canonical literary texts of our culture, right? So, so this, is in, this is a reading issue and a reading experiment. Um, more, than, more than we want a narrative, right? A narrative to get back to, you know, that, that America was this one thing and maybe we even would want, to, want nostalgically want to return it to this one thing. There's a whole host of narratives, right? There's a whole host of narratives. But what CRT wants to do is offer um, a counter narrative that gets at the fundamentally racist ways in which America has existed, our society and others, but we're, let's, let's focus on ours. And to increase the significance, the social significance of racial categories. So we're back to point one and point A in this sense. Race is in a biological, um, uh, is that grounded in biology? It's, it's a construct in that way.
but the idea then isn't to excise it. The, 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 the idea actually is to propound it and perpetuate it. If the axis of, of our culture is rooted in race, then we want to really expose this wherever we can, right? So that we can fix it. Not so that we can excise the conversation, but so that we can expose it for what it is. And normalize identity politics, right? Um, agendas rooted in identitarian categories. Let me hit a couple things, and then I want to open this wide up to talk about. This is, a, this is politically and socially progressive. It is not um, liberal. It's anti-liberal. It's, it's, you, you might say it's one, of, it's one of the fundamentalisms of our culture. It's anti-liberal in the sense that um, um, the view here is that liberal America is the America that perpetuates the idea that we want to be colorblind, right? Liberal America is, is the America that perpetuates the, the mythology of meritocracy. Um, CRT would see these as often half-hearted or, or at least really inconsistent, right? And usually rooted in um, self-interest. Does that make sense? Um, white dominant culture gets really excited about about racism and, and seeks to overturn it when it's in white self-interest to do so. Part of this narrative then is that we haven't made very much progress. That's something we should probably talk about. We, we haven't made very much progress. People might say, um, gosh, since, you know, um, since the civil rights movements in the, in the 60s, have, have we done a whole lot uh, since the overturning of Jim Crow and stuff? Have we done a whole lot? Is, is, is the world a lot better than it was then? CRT would not be quick to say that. <laughs> not be quick. We haven't made that much progress. We've driven some things underground, so on and so forth, but we're still essentially where we are. CRT is really closely linked to what we call intersectionality, right? Um, ways, ways in which um, systems of oppression and dominance of majority culture are interlocked. So CRT sees gender and sexuality also, by the way, as social constructs, really fluid, really arbitrary, but wishes wherever possible um, to, to see itself in that interlocking um, system of oppressions and to form coalitions so that we can have diversity of identities with as much of a singularity of idea as we can. CRT loves and critical theory, CRT, let's say CRT, really, really likes, I would, I would suggest to you strongly, um, diversity of identities. Um, does not like diversity of discourse and ideas. I think that's something really important to get at. Um, one of the things that critical theory has done in our culture, and if, if you spend any time on college campuses and whatnot, you'll see it. Um, it, under, it undercuts um, the value of discourse and even persuasive discourse. It does that because that too is seen as um, um, a place where power and oppression uh, really takes root. So in terms of um, diversity of ideas, this is not liberal. <laughs> this is quite different. It's, it's, a, it's a piece of fundamentalism actually. Um, those are some of the key ideas. We could do a lot more, you guys, obviously. 
But let's stop there and let's talk a little bit about what do you what do you see here? You know, if we what do you what do you see here that you think you know what this is a helpful tool? Just like by the way, evolutionary biology is a real helpful tool. If you're listening to some of them, you would have fundamental differences and disagreements with evolutionary biologists. Um, but boy, they say some really interesting things, really helpful things. So is there, is this a piece of what we might call creaturely wisdom? Is this a piece of creaturely wisdom that you think we can learn anything from? What do you see here that you think is good and, and, and helpful? Well, Deacon John, I'm actually finding as you're talking, I, I feel like there's a lot of touch points I could use in trying to talk to somebody about what Christians believe. So, for example, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about different uh, atonement theories and um, how the idea that Jesus Christ came to die and, and somehow like pay or repay uh, back the sin that, that we've committed and how um, just a lot of people will like shy away from that or really like that atonement theory. But then I'm reading someone like Cornell West, who's talking about the need for reparations for the black community. And, and it's just interesting that like our, our culture does seem to really need and, and desire a reparation of sorts, um, a paying back. Mm -hmm. And I just realized like, Oh, that might actually be an entryway for talking about Jesus and like what, what he does for us and, and um, how Jesus Christ is like this ultimate reparation um, paid back to God. Mm -hmm. But then also the other touch point is um, in trying to explain sin to a person or original sin to a person. Um, I feel like when talking to a white person, I could actually have an entryway in saying like, well, you know, when you're born into whiteness, you didn't commit anything wrong necessarily, but you immediately took hold of all the privileges that came with whiteness and, and you've acted on those and, and you've internalized racism in a way that um, has like manifested in certain actions that you might not realize you're, you know, that are, you might not realize are harmful and kind of talking about sin as being something that's happening both consciously and, and unconsciously. And it's just kind of interesting to, to think about like, oh, these, the, there are these analogies that I can use in critical race theory for helping, you know, maybe a more liberal minded, uh, in particularly white person to better enter into, you know, Christian belief in a way that's concrete down to earth and something they already accept as true. Um, mm. so I'm, I'm still thinking through those aspects, but, um, I'm finding this being really helpful, maybe, having a conversation about Christianity and, and race. Yeah. You know, uh, Matt, most, most things are caught rather than explicitly taught, right? Um, most things are lived rather than, rather than merely learned from books and, and uh, academic uh, lecterns and things like that. You're, you're really geared that way as I am too. Um, but that's not normative, and even in your life, right? This is something that, that helps us think about um, some of the most influential, powerful um, forms of catechesis in your life um, happen in just the daily routines of your life. Does that make sense? So um, that is one of the things that's, that's, that's being said here, is that by you, by you living in this culture and being acclimated to it, 
part of your acclimation to this culture is acclimation to parts of the culture that are, pre- that, that are pretty subtly sinister. Lots of Christians really, really revolt against that <laughs> on the face of it. But I think reading this with a hermeneutic of empathy, we might be able to say, um, does, does scripture talk about, about the world being that which we must resist? The world being given over to the powers, um, the world being um, subject to the spirit of this age, which bears witness to its, its own efficacy, its own lordship, God defiance, right? To the extent that, um, that we are blithely enculturated to the world, we imbibe these things, right? So, so lots of Christians would um, put, hit, the, hit the brakes right away at language of systemic racism. Um, there are systems of the world <laughs> and the world is flawed, right? The world is flawed. We, scripture is so clear on that. Um, I don't know that that's um, at least on the face of it, right? I don't know that, that, that we should have as much problem with it as lots of Christians do. I think this is a way and this is, a, this is uh, helpful to us to engage this way. What are you thinking, Will? I know you've done lots of, lots of work here. Well, I was I was just thinking. I think one of I was thinking first of in First Thessalonians that just the, don't don't despise prophecies and test everything. Uh, hold on to what's good. And I think something that's helpful that I found helpful is uh, the sense of identifying and explaining and exposing power in the sense that, like you know, since. Lamech or Nimrod, the first mighty man before the Lord, there's been, humanity's had an obsession with power and crooked timber has built a twisted house. And so being mindful of the ways in which this like lust for power um, has affected our culture um, and our society and being able to identify some of those different areas um, is helpful. Sometimes I find with critical race theory theory too, there's that sense of like, almost like when someone first becomes a Calvinist and they get in the Calvinist cage when it comes to like original sin or total depravity. And they want to start to argue total depravity means that everyone is basically a little Hitler and as, as evil as they possibly can. And you have to sort of reel it back and be like, Oh no, just total depravity just means that sin touches every area of human life. Um, without essentialism, going the essentialist route at all, I think it's like helpful to say the ideas that built our nation, which included racial inferiority and an unbiblical anthropology, have touched probably every single aspect of our social life without saying that everything is all about race to the fullest mm-hmm. possible extent. Everything's as racist as it possibly could be. So I don't yeah. know. Those are some no. of my immediate thoughts. That's really helpful. Um, it's, it's funny. You, I, I thought the same thing. Well, um, <laughs> um, when you get infatuated with certain kinds of ways of thinking, how it acts is it's a hammer and everything's a nail, right? And then you just utterly annoy everybody you talk to for the next three years until you work it out of your system. Um, but what this does, and, and, and this, this is, we should 
don't feel don't feel afraid to really blow back on this either. This seeks to be a totalizing hermeneutic of the world. I think it's it's an utter failure in that way. It can't be that. Um, if you confess all things hold together in Jesus Christ, if you confess the one Christ reality, in other words, which is utterly biblical, right? Um, you can't confess that. This is a tool. Um, it can't be that. It can't be that, and it isn't that. To the extent that that it plays that role, now you're now you're talking about you're you're in the area of a false gospel. If the gospel explicates all things, this isn't a gospel. I do want to get at that that issue of power, but um, I've got I've got I've got some criticisms. I want to I want to lay at this, but I do I think right off the bat we want to say, gosh, you guys, right? Can we be can we be slow to to speak and just quick to listen here? And, and, and can we think about the lived experience of people that, you know, have, have, have lived with, you know, redlining and things like that, if you've ever read about that. I mean, that's Chicago, right? If you've ever gone up to, to Evanston in the 1960s, there were signs on the beaches that said, no blacks, no Jews in the water of Lake Michigan. That's a, that's a stunning thing. Uh, and we just, you know, you lose, you lose so much credibility, among other things, when you can't grant that. Right, you just can't enter in a dialogue. Michael Wright said something really interesting uh, last week when he was here. He said something about we. I already know your culture. <laughs> I live in it every day, right? So we would be we would be um, um, we might be um, how would I want to say it? It might seem natural to us to say we want to learn one another, and he'd say, "I think I know a lot more about you than you know about me." That's one of the things that this gets at, right? It just gets at that. I think I think it's helpful for us not to be utterly dismissive of it in those ways, and to cultivate that hermeneutic of of empathy here. Dick and John, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, not even at the level of um, at the level of theory in which it operates at you know Harvard and Yale, but at, at the ground level of experience, right? When when I when I when I live in you know, the south side of Chicago, these are some of the things I pick up on, right? When COVID hits, and I find it's a lot easier um, for people that live where I do um, to not be exposed to COVID, you know, there's just, there's just certain things about our culture that 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 uh, really give you a leg up. Okay. Yeah, I'm, um, by the way, hi, everybody. Sorry to, to get on late. It's Ellison's 21st birthday. So we did a big birthday breakfast for him. And so, I'm, John, I'm glad you just started and jumped in. Mm. Um, okay, so I guess this is an observation, and just even hearing, I've done, you know, some reading in CRT and tried to understand it, but you've really summarized it so helpfully and concretely, and it is one of those incredibly powerful ideas that has had incredibly pervasive influence if you've been in the academic environment oh, and or the multicultural multi-ethnic conversation it's just it's it's there so this is so helpful so two observations i think one is um on one hand as a white person when you read about whiteness you read about white privilege you have people talk to you about it um it's an incredible experience of powerlessness um and um and i want to say and as I, as I seek to have a hermeneutic of empathy, that phrase you're going to teach us into right now, at one level, that's not a horrible thing, at one level, mm -hmm. um, because it can prick the heart of the, uh, the, the white person to say, wow, I mean, 
I can't help being white. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't have sovereignty over my whiteness. I wasn't, I didn't, blah, blah, blah. Um, and how do I ever get out of this? Like, and, and like, is it ever enough? Like, have we ever done enough? And you can have all these responses. You can have about a dozen like really heartfelt responses that white people almost would not want to say in front of any other person of color and probably wouldn't even say in front of most other white people unless they can really trust that white person. Then they might say all these things. And it's, it's powerlessness. And at one point you go, okay, so that actually pricks my empathy because that is what people of color feel all the time. Um, I didn't choose to be this color. I can't change anything in, in the larger system. I can't get this job. I can't get this opportunity. I can't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I can't drive my car without being stopped. I mean, it's just, it's a massive reality that people of color live with in our country all the time. So one of you go, okay, let me just live in that some. Let me, I need to experience this some. Um, okay, so that's important, I think. On the other side, though, is that when a CRT concept becomes institutionalized, when it becomes gospelized, and Will, you were, I think, referring to this really articulately, it becomes totalized. Um, so then you as the white person have had the conscience properly, you know, hurt and, and bruised, but then what? And then you find, oh my goodness, now I'm in the same despair that my brothers and sisters of color are in, and we find ourselves in massive despair, and the power has flipped. And in one level, you go, well, in the world's terms, that's only fair that the power flips because we've had the power for so long. Now CRT gives the power to somebody else. But ultimately, of course, our question is, what is power? And, and what is a cruciform justice? And it does, it does, I think, also lead us to probably a gospel critique that I'll hand off to you now. But I, I, I am helped when you articulate it to also say, before I go there, it's almost like we know Easter is always coming, but we do need to <laughs> live in that. We need to live in that Good Friday, not be stupid and say it's never going to come. We know it's going to come, but we live in Good Friday. There's probably a Good Friday aspect to a white person taking in CRT's positions yeah. um, that can prepare us for the freedom that Easter brings all of us. It's one of the things I want to get to so, sooner than, than later. I want to say a couple more things, but um, one of the really helpful theological ways we can engage this, and it's a, it's a way you can engage all kinds of major thoughts in our world is, what's the gospel here, right? It's so, we're hardwired. We're hardwired for worship. We're hardwired to think, I need to be saved, right? So, so when you're thinking about individualism, for instance, it's a really good question to say, what's the gospel? What's the good news here? What does it save me from? What's its vision of the kingdom? What's its vision of the life I want? Consumerism, the same way. So here, when you think a good question to ask critical race theory is, what is the good news here? Right? What are we looking for? And the issue is freedom, right? Freedom from domination, freedom from oppression, and power. Now, um, when you think about, let me back up even. I think there are five things there are five things that you can just when you're thinking about people, it's just 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 kind of nuts and bolts knowledge you want to have about people. All people want this. Again, we're hardwired for it. Status. How you get it and what you think it is, well, we can talk about that. You want it by the way you should. Significance, you want it. Security, you want it. Freedom, you want it. Power, you want it. I think those are the big five. When, it doesn't matter who you're talking to. They want that. The gospel of Jesus Christ addresses every single one of those things. Do we have status as image bearers? 
do we have security in the one in whom there is no condemnation and no separation, Romans 8, right? Do we have powers, the, the, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in us? The, 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 the spirit that the Lord's given us isn't a fear, but it's power and love, says Paul. Um, do we have freedom? Jesus Christ has come to set us free, and where the spirit is, there's liberality. That's the, that's the language of Galatians. People want that. People should want it. What we think it is and how we think we can get it is another issue. One of the reasons that, that CTR and critical theory is so pervasive and so powerful in our culture is because it addresses those things. And when you find when you find a cultural movement that addresses those things, oh, it's going to be powerful. You got to speak the gospel to it. You got and you got you, you might say something like rather than no no this is all this is all wrong everything about this is wrong. It's saying you know the things you want, right? They're really good. Um, this, there's a better way. Right. Even though you touch on some things that are really important, this is a hermeneutical tool. We could, it, 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 there's a piece of creaturely wisdom here. It's not the gospel. It's, it's, it's moving through our culture as if it's the gospel. And one of the things it does, um, like Bishop was saying, um, is it takes away, it does this on, in two different ways, and I, I, I'd love to hear from you guys about this, but it takes away on the one point, universality. Bio, biological essentialism, right? In, 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 in conversations, especially, by the way, of conversations of, of sex, biological essentialism, <laughs> um, I utterly affirm it and agree with it. Um, this would say it's just another fluid social construct, just like race is. And when we're fine with that, it's a self-styled one. What these kind of things tend to do is they take away individuality, not individualism. That's that's you don't want that individuality. It takes it away from the person who affirms it, but it takes it away from everybody. If you guys have ever read a book by Shelby Steele, it's called uh, White Guilt. It's a very good book. He talks about this um, as people who are <laughs> well, me, most of you we're of European extraction. We're white. We hear this stuff and we say, like Bishop said, I'm so morally compromised, right? If you don't think of the individual, then I'm the sum total of everything that's happened in the last 400 years in America. I can't, all I can do is be quiet. That's all I can do. You want to listen, um, but it takes away individuality. When it takes away individuality, one of the things it's going to do is it's going to take away agency. And as an image bearer, you have agency, right? You never um, sacrifice that. If it takes away agency, then, then we have no ability to do what you might call moral theology, right? It takes that away. I'll give you a quote. Um, it's, it's a famous quote. Anaya Presley, she says, um, she would be an advocate, advocate of this. She says, we don't need any more brown faces that don't want to be a brown voice. We don't need any more black faces that don't want to be a black voice. This is the kind of collectivism that reduces people um, to um, to um, it, it reduces people to demographics and collectivism. You only have individuality as you plug into that 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 tribal ideation, and it, it already takes away universality. So it really, really handcuffs us in those ways. Does that make sense? Really handcuffs us. Um, and what it also does, let me just yeah, go for it, Caleb. Sorry, sorry. If you're finishing, you can no, finish. No. I just had a quick. Um, I was, I was, oh, go ahead. 
I'm, I'm done. Um, you go. Okay. I, when you, when you brought up collectivism, this was just something I've been thinking through with these last couple discussions on, um, we were talking about like just neither Jew and Greek and how the Gentiles and Jews relate, but then also race and all of these things. Um, when, um, Father Josh Moon came and talked, um, he was talking about like the, the connectedness of the, the Gentiles, like the Christians being grafted into this, like this Jewish nature. And there's like a unity here that's really strong and in scripture um, between these two things. Um, and then uh, I hear a lot of people in discussions around CRT and all of these things, when we talk about white guilt and all this different stuff, um, there's always like this call for like white people to like repent or like church groups like the Southern Baptist Convention or whatever denomination it is to like collectively like repent the church mm -hmm. collectively repent of sin um, mm -hmm. in like and in scripture I think we see like Israel do that in some way I think Dan I think of Daniel when he's reading through you know the different um, books of the Old Testament he's just repenting and weeping for the sins of his people um before God is there there's is there an element where the church also participates in that type of like collective repentance for the sin of of the church in the past or because I've heard lots of debates on on what collective sin is and what that means mm -hmm. in terms of yeah let's talking confession um, because you don't want it to go to pure collectivism right because there's an element in which there's individual accountability and sin um, of but there's also a reality in which, you know, is it is it good that we, you know, vocally acknowledge the sins of our past tradition? Yeah. I don't know what your thoughts on it. Yeah. So do, you, do you remember last week when, when Will Easton brought up um, the changing of the, the baptismal liturgy for blacks in South Carolina? Yeah. So we could take that a couple of different ways, right? We could say, we could take it as an apologetic moment and say, um, um, that's not me and distance myself from that, right? Um, but there is a sense in which, as the body of Jesus Christ, who bears one another's burdens, we bear one another's shame, right? So you can put it in a different way, right? When you, when you hear about the, the pedophilia scandal in, in Rome, you don't say, well, that's, that's why I'm not a Roman Catholic. It's the wrong answer. <laughs> you don't eat one another, right? The, the church doesn't eat itself. You bear that shame, right? You, you're profoundly identified as living members of one body with these people. Um, so you can't distance. What you also don't necessarily do is um, take personal ownership for every wrong that's ever been done in the history of the world. Because what that leads to is a malformed conscience, right? And to the extent, to the extent you do... Um, no, I don't want to open that can of worms, but let's say that. You, you bear shame. And the, the church, by the way, the church leads the way in repentance, right? If the, if the mission, the, the church's mission and message to the world is repent and believe the gospel. Well, repentance starts here, right? Um, we're not, we're not, we're not um, peddling something that we don't own. We do that. Um, but you are not. Um, uh, if I just see Caleb Karnash, if I reduce you to demographics and I say there is an instantiation of Da, 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 da. And he's only, you know, he only has a face and a name as, as he intersect as all these intersecting things fall on him. And then he bears the guilt for all of those. That's actually not true. You want to be really, really careful. That's a really anti-gospel anti way to think about these things. Yeah. Does that make sense?
Yeah. Um, yeah. And one of the things that makes this tough is that uh, um, if we say racism is just baked into uh, our social structures, you can't extract yourself from it. Um, then all you can ever do is say, I'm a racist. To the extent that you say, I'm not, you'd say, you see the problem? <laughs> you're, you're so blinded, you're so coded to it. There's no redemption there. There's no redemption whatsoever. Now, you, what you can say is, I live, I live in a world that my Lord tells me I got to wear a, a helmet and a breastplate and carry a sword, and I have to be vigilant and stay awake and alert. Um, and I want to live the word, by definition, means I must resist the world. The world is systemically, right? And by the way, it is an implicate of what Will said. If, if sin affects, right, um, our effective life, our, our course of thinking, sin affects, permeates a human person. Sin permeates a culture too, right? Um, so we want to be aware of these things, have to do that. That's part of um, the, the spiritual gift of discernment, or the, the, the ministry of the spirit of discernment. But it's quite another then, and you could take this on a personal level too. Um, it's one thing to say that 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 sin is is suffuses a culture. It's another thing then to say that the only the only response then to that culture is to burn it down. Our Lord's a Lord of redemption, right? And so when you think about these things, if you guys read Chesterton, he's wonderful. Gosh, read read everything from Chesterton. Critical theory, not critical race theory in particular, but critical theory in general. Um, what it wants to do is just rigorously, relentlessly critique and criticize every assumption of everything. What it often doesn't do that with is a spirit of love. And, and Chesterton says, if you want to reform something, you've got to love it. You've got to love it first. You can't hate it. Um, and so when you have reform movements that fundamentally hate what they're seeking to reform, they want to burn it down. You want to be really careful about that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Thank you. Uh, Deacon John, could I ask another question? Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think I, I quite understand the link between, so sometimes I, I, I hear people speak of social construction yeah. as though it necessarily entails arbitrariness. Mm -hmm. And this has always been confusion for me because, you know, when I think about, I, you know, I, I wholly embrace like social construction is, you know, a really beautiful thing to me. All it's saying is that humans are culture makers. So language, for example, is totally socially constructed. Even the symbols we use are, arbitrary in a sense, but they have real meaning to us. So you can read something like Shakespeare and you can, and beauty is actually genuinely communicated to you through, through Shakespeare, for example. And so there's like, a, there's the aspect of social construction. Um, but I, I don't understand how, like art, what, what the claim of arbitrariness is meant to to bring that's in any way enlightening. Um, because when someone says, you know, gender is socially constructed or they want to name a bunch of things that are socially constructed. I think you can do a real comparison of things like race and racism, the social construction. You can compare that with Shakespeare and say like, 
well, I mean, here's a good, here's a really beautiful, you know, example of social construction. Here's a really poisonous, destructive one. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So why, why do you think social construction arbitrariness are always linked and is that necessary or not? No, I don't think, I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's necessary for, I mean, the, the way you steward your maleness in our culture, uh, if you went to Kenya, right, you, you would see different ways of stewarding maleness, right? And there is, there is like social, social contracts, even understood ways of being. Um, they, they're not necessarily arbitrary. They're, 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 they're more substantial than that. But I think that we, we have to be really careful. Let's use words, for instance. Or we can stay with, we, let's use them both. We tend to do something like this, right? Well, your sex is biological and your gender is, is a social construct. And therefore, um, um, there's nothing fundamentally true and stable about it, or necessarily that. Theologically, we'd want to say something far different. Actually, your sex is a is a, um, a sacramental sign of gender that's rooted in God's life. It's as, it's as concrete as God's life, and there's nothing iffy about God. Nothing. The same with words, right? I mean, we wouldn't just say um, that that we invent and change language. Now, there's a there is a social kind of organicness to the way language grows and changes over time, for sure. But if we only say the former, then we have to say, you know. God isn't the God who's characterized by speech and the word, the eternal word, isn't the eternal self-expression of God who's concretely manifest in Jesus Christ, who takes language, right? Who takes language and actually in the power of the spirit uses that as a vehicle to um, bring to us true knowledge of God that we can actually say true things, not just provisional or arbitrary or socially constructed things about God, but true things even infallible things, right? People can speak infallibly about God. If they, if they speak the language of scripture, we can do that. And so I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a very, um, it's, a, it's a both and, and you just have to really be careful with, with um, that you're not negligent with those things. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. It also sounds to me like in social construction, there's almost this uh, like, there needs to be a recognition that just like with language, we can all participate in changing the language. Mm -hmm. Um, Each of like, even in our own houses, we have ways of speaking to each other that outsiders need to be initiated into or like playing with the language. It's not like uh, collectivism where we don't get to participate. Um, But so here's an, here's an example. Um, Brenda and Stuart and I are, out front of you guys by a few years. I'll bet you we could say the way that we talked in, you know, I graduated high school in 87. The way that we talked in the locker rooms, and that would have been perfectly fine in 1987 about some of these things would never fly. That's a good thing. It's generally a really good thing. Um, and so there, there's, there's the organic nature of, of language, right? There's the organic nature of language. Now, we just want to be really careful of it. When you, a good way to get at um, what a culture really likes is to ask it, what will you laugh at and what will you absolutely not tolerate? What will you fight over? So 
um, we could use racial slurs, right? That would just, you know, I could, I could say something in a classroom that my job would be gone the next day, I'd be canceled in our culture. Our culture won't laugh at that, they hold it, it's sacrosanct. I could say, I could say something blasphemous in a public square and nobody would bat an eye. It's a, it gets you right away at what we think is really important. And so there's an organic changing in our, in our, in our language that I think for the most part is really good. A lot of it's really good. Um, but you never, you never want to, um, you never want to just say that we are, um, uh, captains and masters of language and words because our, the way we use those is a stewardship of our being bound to the word. You guys, do you think we can critique this? We're all, I, I'm off. I'm off, I'm off the notes by a long shot, but these are good things to talk about. Do you think that we can? Deacon John, why don't you plan on going to ten forty-five? Okay. Uh, take 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 the take a full thirty more minutes. This is all so awesome. We'll take a fifteen-minute break, and then we'll and then we'll transition to Sebastian and Mimi. So please keep going for another. Okay. 30. When we talk about th these things, I, when I teach apologetics, that's one of the things I talk about with my classes all the time. These five things people want: their right to want. Status, significance, security, power, freedom. They want them. They should want them. The gospel promises them. Whatever ideation in our world touches, the more of those it touches, and the more promises it makes around those five things, the more powerful it's going to be. One of the things we have to do as ministers of the gospel, again, is, is make sure that those words aren't being suffused with things that are really alien to them. So, for instance, Bishop talked about power. What, what's power, right? The power in the way that the world sees it is quite different than, than the power, than power that is, by the way, divine attribute, right? And basic to God's very character. How does God manifest his power? Cruciformity, right? How does the church have efficacy in her, in her ministry such that the gates of hell, you know, won't prevail against her? Cruciformity. Right. How, how is the preaching of the word um, effectual, says Paul, not in displays of erudition, but in spirit rock power. Right. Um, the same with freedom. We tend to think that freedom in our culture means um, 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 no social um, impediments to enacting what we want to do. <clears throat> it's not the way scripture talks about what freedom is. It's not, it's not the way in which God is free and seeks to make us free, right? Um, God is free to be his holy self um, without impediment, to, to truly be um, um, in the life of the triune God, um, freely so, and then freely with us, without impediment. Our Lord comes to make us free. He actually binds us to himself, right? There's a yoke that he gives us. It doesn't oppress us. It's actually light and good. Frees us um, to be who we ought be so that we're not living contrary and against the grain to what it means to be an image bearer. Freedom, which is, you know, JP2 would call it archaic freedom, right? Our culture loves the notion of archaic freedom. It's not a gospel value whatsoever in any way it manifests itself, whether it's critical theory or anything else. It's just never a value. <clears throat> um, another thing that I want you guys to see here or that we can talk about 
is that um, because there's no there's no universals here, and there's it's very very hard to get truth is seen as something that's that's that again a social construct, right? Usually, when you're talking about truth, or the people that talk the most about truth are the people that want to wield power and oppress the most. Truth is a function of power. It's a thinly masked function of power. What you, what you tend to find is it's really, really hard to ever say we've accomplished anything. So when we think about racial reconciliation, when we think about is it, is it, is it better to live in a, in a segregated culture under Jim Crow, have we made any progress? It's really tough and discouraging, I think, to say no. <laughs> um, um, and, there, and it's really hard to get any metric by which you would evaluate that. But where there aren't those things, then what happens is these things have to prepare. There's no end. There's no end game. There's no real way to ever fix any of this. The same is true with the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution is never ending. It's never going to end. There is no end game. The end game is to continually perpetuate it. I think that that too is is a critical theory, and so is this. There is no end game to this. <laughs> Um, there is no way that we can say, let's, it, it, what, if, what if we, you know, if, if we did this, 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 and this, would this make it better? The answer is always no. And so we want to be really, really, really um, careful in how we, we think about this. Um, let me just, let me just give you that observation. I want to move to a couple other things if you guys are good, but I want to I want to hear from you. We can talk about the this this really needs to be spoken about for about 10 more sessions. <laughs> There's a lot to say here, a lot. And I want to be careful, you know. I'll give you a full disclosure. I mean, I think I think you want to develop this hermeneutic of sympathy. I think there's there's lots that you could say, you know what? You read some CTR. Um, um it can, I think it can really help you see some things. It can really help you see some things. It can really, it can really peak some, peak some uh, occasions for repentance. Um, I wanna be careful that I'm not too long on criticism because I think it's high. There's, there's a lot to say about it too that is not good, not good. Um, but I do wanna talk about secular religiosity a little bit. If you get, will you permit me? Do you guys wanna say anything more there? Feel free to take a step back too, if we need to. Let me punch this back up. Let me put the notes back up. I don't know if you guys know Charles Taylor. <clears throat> this book that he wrote, The Secular Age, it's, you know, it's epochal. It's a really important book, <clears throat> but he's, you know, widely recognized as the dean of secularism, what it is. One of the things he notes about secularism, the age in which we live, part of the spirit of our age, is what secularism above all wants to do is put an end to goals and claims that transcend self-styled notions of human flourishing. And so when we think of secular secularity, sometimes we think of it as being like, you know, anti-religious or, you know, something like that. It's not. It's not that at all, as a matter of fact. <clears throat> um, even... Um, the church, even Christianity in a secular age, what you'll find is to the extent that it's conformed to the spirit of this age, it'll do just that. 
So for instance, it'll, 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 it'll put the gospel to primarily the end of um, therapeutic ends, let's say, or something like that, or social revisionist ends, something like that. Now, does the gospel have a profound psychology and does our Lord Jesus Christ want to heal us from the inside out? Yes, <laughs> right? We want that. It's a little bit different than, than saying that the gospel's primary takeaway is therapeutic. Does it make sense? Is our Lord, um, are, we, are we people of justice? And then is that a huge issue? And wherever it is, do you, wherever, wherever it doesn't exist, um, does the gospel want to um, move into that space as part of, as part of um, <clears throat> an eschatological anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth? Yes, oh, always, always that's the case. Can you reduce the gospel to um, a social justice movement? Quite a different thing. Quite a different thing. Does that make sense? <clears throat> One of the things I want you to see, and I, I think it's a good thing to think about um, critical theory and CRT in this, in this vein as well. What we have in, in a secular world <clears throat> is a world that's still quite religious and very much open to religiosity because people are hardwired for it. People are always going to be that. You can count on it. Like Voltaire said, right? If we, if, if, if we, if, 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 if we killed God, or if there wasn't a God, we'd have to straight away invent one for ourselves, right? People are homo adorans. We're worshiping creatures. That's what we do. And so in our culture, in our secular culture, what you see is political ideologies are being invested with religious significance. Political ideologies are among the most powerful seductive forces at work in our age, which is politically preoccupied. If you ever read Jacques Ellul, he's a little dated now, but there's a book called The New Demons. It is awesome. <laughs> and basically what he says is politics is the religion of secularity, right? Politics is that. And everything gets promoted in that, right? If politics moves up to religiosity, then like sports moves up to politics or something like that. Things get promoted in cultures like that. You see that in our own. These political ideologies are religious, not that of Jesus. What they do uh, and why they're so powerful in our, as our culture is they make attempts to fill that God-shaped vacuum that's left by a secular age. What they do is they want to conscript us to other lords, convert us to other gospels, commit us to other kingdoms. And what these things will promise is unity and meaning. It's unity and meaning, not from above, from below, right? Not in the triune God of the gospel and our baptismal identity, the spirit of the age. It's part of the, sp the spirit of the age to do this. And one of the things you see in our culture, you guys, is the gospel has been, we've never been a Christian nation, right? You, you could never talk about America like that. Lots of people do. You shouldn't. But what is true is the gospel has really, really profoundly influenced our culture. And so some of the, the highest values that we still have tend to be vestiges of gospel values, kingdom values, that's becoming more and more discomfortable or outright dismissive of the, the, the message of the kingdom. Does that make sense? So issues like diversity and inclusion um, and um, um, justice and things like that. These are all gospel imperatives. 
What our culture tends to do as it becomes more and more secular is it rejects the transcendent realities and the groundings of these things and wants to perpetuate them on their own terms. Does that make sense? And that's one of the reasons why our culture is really open to um, sociopoliticalized gospels. It's really open to it. I want to give you this quote from Hendrikus Burkhoff. This little book called Christ and the Powers. You guys, you want to read a great book. It's about 80 pages long. It's phenomenal. He's a, he's a Dutchman. He grew up in, in, or he was in grad school in Berlin in the 1930s. And you know what that means. He's talking about how, how the, the powers of the day just kind of seized on your inner and outer person. But then he goes on to say this. Would you think about this with me? He says, it shouldn't be difficult for us to perceive today in every realm of life these powers which unify men yet separate them from God. The state politics class, race, social struggle, national interest, public opinion, accepted moralities, niceness, the ideas of decency, humanity, democracy, inclusion, diversity, all of those things. These give unity and direction to many lives precisely insofar as they're not invested with gospel realities. Precisely by giving unity and direction, they separate these lives from the true God. They let us believe that we've found meaning of existence, whereas actually they estrange us from that. I think, I think our thinking about living um, in a world <laughs> um, where the spirit of the age blows really strong and where we want to be discerning of the powers, I think that quote is really helpful. First of all, for seeing, right? Exactly what C CRT tells us is like, you guys, um, uh, majority culture privilege and power uh, might be thicker on the ground than you think, <laughs> right? You, you, you have some eyes to see it. At the same time, um, where that's really helpful, the answer, the gospel is not CRT, it's not even, not even close. And so that too, um, you want to be really, really careful as it as it as it offers meaning, unity, coherence, cohesion, a hermeneutic for reality um, that isn't rooted in gospel realities. It it seeks to take a pl the place of the gospel. Does that make sense? And so I think it takes a lot of maturity right now. This is one of the ways in which the church really, really needs to grow up here um, to think through these things. You guys want to say anything about that? I'm going to pass. You you can look at this. This is just um, this is Gerald McDermott. What he what he's what he's arguing here is that our culture has a secular liturgy now, um, in which um, you know original sin isn't to is 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 something quite different than a than a biblical understanding of that. And um, you know to be baptized and to come to newness of life is to become woke to these certain powers and. Um, so on and so forth. But I think you really, really want to think about another hermeneutic of thinking about the world is to think about them in terms of the, the religious um, liturgies that our, our whole culture lives by so that you can see them and you can live the gospel in them. Talk to me, you guys.
Does that does that resonate with you? That a, a secular world like ours is a profoundly religious world. It's profoundly religious, right? Um, I think that that that's part of the, the wisdom of the church to live in this age is to know we live in a profoundly religious world and um, the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, settles into this world in the context of a whole lot of gospels, right? A whole lot of gospels that are offering power, freedom, status, significance, security, so on and so forth. Um, well, Deacon John, let me just jump in quickly. That that Burkhoff quote is insane. Um, I think I read some Walt, is it Walter Wink who might have written on Powers back in the 80s. He did. He did. Um, yeah, but I so haven't read. We're going to write on the Powers again real soon. Okay, good, good, good. <laughs> I, I haven't read Burkhoff, but man, do I want to now. Um, and um, so just a real quick thought there that in some ways, wow, I mean, that little paragraph gives us as Gregory House students our marching orders. I mean, this is what we're doing as 21st century gospel workers um, is that precisely by giving you a direction, they separate these many lives from the true God. They let us believe that we have found the meaning of existence, whereas they really estrange us from the true meaning. I mean, I feel like that's our work, isn't it? I mean, yeah. um, and even just to put like really, really pointed application on it. That's why even in this season where we um, are in a pandemic and we have to be, especially in Chicagoland, uh, very careful of our elderly and our compromised health folks. And, and we have to be very understanding and careful. We also, I would add, and, and uh, folks at Resno, we went ahead and had uh, gathered uh, embodied worship on Sunday, uh, very carefully, but we did so amidst the surge of cases because of this, <laughs> because of this, because, um, you know, to have gone three months without getting the people of God together we can only depend on the grace of God to overcome what was lost there because every single week, our people, our people, our baptized people have to be ministered this reality, not to mention the people the Lord is giving us who are, who are the unbaptized don't yet know <clears throat> Jesus. That's yeah. how pervasive this is. That's how profound what Burkhoff is saying is, is that, is that it's so what they're accepting is so close to the gospel. And yes, Burkhoff says more articulately so far away. Yeah. And we're the ones who have to be really intellectually um, and Holy Spirit-wise able, um, by God's help, to to reveal this, to mm -hmm. to to highlight this. This is our deconstruction work, if you will. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's really well said. And, and Holy Church is the one that does it. I mean, we can't do it as individuals, and I want I want every son and daughter to hear that. This is way too much for any of us to do. It'll it'll crush us. But um, but Holy Church can do this. Holy Church does do this. This is what yeah. she's this is what she's made. She's the mom that says to the kids, "Don't believe that person. Like, they're yeah. giving you three quarters truth, but but the quarter that they're not giving you is demonic." <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, for us, for the for the people of God, we 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 live by the gospel, like Paul like Paul says to the Romans, right? I can't wait to get there and preach the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. It's the, it's the gospel that saves you and that keeps saving you. Keep saving you, right? We never, we never outgrow the gospel. Um, and then when we think about the deconstructive work we need to do here, the reconstructive work of the gospel, and then the, and then the, the issues that face us. We live in an age where um, we're really anxious. If we were younger, if we were my, my son's age, 
you know, we, we might have um, eco anxiety, right? Because if we don't, if we don't, if we don't um, remedy, you know, global problems, ecological problems, we're, we're out. Reconciliation, um, it, can, it can have that same type of force. Um, by the way, Pastor Michael Wright, awesome. We, we press in, we do the work we can do. We, we, we're, we, we're faithful in the spheres we can. And this is a work we want to have. Our, we keep our eye on the ball here, and the Lord does these things. So he was even saying, like, don't, you know, don't have reconciliation anxiety here. Do the work of the ministry, right? And, and in that sense, it's a plotting. It's a plotting work, right? You do the work. You do the work. You do the work. You watch God bring fruit, right? And you don't, you don't freak out in the meantime about it. You do the work. But there's a deconstructive, reconstructive reality of the gospel that's going on all the time. Um, let me say this too, boy, I, I, I just, let me say this. I have it in the notes, clear eyed, stout hearted, theological discernment, um, in these areas, prophetic timeliness or untimeliness, if you please, is really what we need here. Because the only way you can really get at these things is theologically. Christ's kingdom and the kingdom we seek, um, does not, cannot, will not, our Lord will not underwrite or bring to completion leftist or rightist sociopolitical outlooks on the world. He will not do it. His kingdom's equidistant from both. And I know, you know, any, you say that around a group of Christians, they'll say, well, no, nah, it's not equidistant from both, right? We're, we're more right. Or so it's equidistant from both and all others beside because it's qualitatively different from every single vision of the world that doesn't begin and end with the Alpha and the Omega. It's equidistant from both. And one of the things that um, we need to be real careful of is we um, um, live in a world where there are a whole lot of different gospels. And where we're, we're one of the spirits of the ages, uh, who says this? Uh, Richard John Newhouse, if you guys remember him, the seedy of sloth, slothfulness, like, we're tired of the gospel, right? We got the gospel, now what? Man, you ever find yourself like that, be careful. Because then we'll, what, we'll, what we'll tend to think is, really what the gospel's supposed to do is just underwrite agendas that are greater and grander than it, right? Um, fortify kingdoms that are better than it. C.S. Lewis talks so wonderfully about this in Screwtape, right? Screwtape's talking to Wormwood, and he's talking about how, how, do, you how do you deflect a young Christian? Get him, get him to think that there's a greater and grander, a grander agenda than, than kingdom work, than that the gospel bears witness to another kingdom. He talks like this. Certainly, we don't want to, we don't want men to allow their Christianity to flow over into their political life. For the establishment of anything like a really just society would be a major disaster. Right? So, you know, he's a tempter. So, you know, he's speaking satirically. What he's saying is, are we do we do we care about sociopolitical realities? Absolutely, absolutely. And we speak as the church, according to the word, in them. And we speak to them in this way. Wormwood says, or Screwtape says, it'd be a disaster if Christians did that. On the other hand, what we want and want very much is to make men treat Christianity as a means, preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement. Think about what Taylor just said to reduce everything to human flourishing. But failing that as a means to anything, even to social justice. 
the thing to do is to get a man first to value social justice as a thing which the enemy demands. He does. Justice, kingdom justice. And then work him onto the stage in which he values Christianity because it can produce these things, a means to a greater and grander end um, than kingdom ends. Does that make sense? I think that is, you know, when you're thinking about um, critical theory, by the way, critical theory as it relates to sex, gender, these things, critical theory as it relates to CRT, I think that is uh, a real temptation right now um, coming up that that there's so much of this that touches on gospel realities that we say, hmm. um, I love the gospel, but what I really want to see the gospel do is bring about some of these things. And be really, really careful about that. Really careful about that. I'm taking this down so I can see your faces. I can only see three of you there. Do you guys want to say anything? Thanks again for this rich uh, teaching, Deacon John. And it was helpful getting at even some of the ways in which the conversations around power in our culture with critical race theory, this, because everything's so interlocked, the scalpel is never turned on itself in a sense. Mm. Um, and the way in which if we buy into it a whole stock, it can kind of diminish our spiritual authority as leaders and the ability to exercise that spiritual authority as the Lord gives us the ability to. And I've heard other leaders, especially white um, men who are in leadership positions who are white men in the church who feel that sense of like they've got a you know they, they're not allowed to uh confront congregants or students in their youth group who are minorities and engaged in sexual sin yeah um and or other kinds of sin uh, because it would be just perceived as a power move and feel like they either have to abdicate their position that they feel mm -hmm. called to or um just let that that kind of sin go unaddressed so it's helpful to to hear that and to get that nuanced teaching on some of the really good ways in which there are unhealthy worldly forms of power that critical race theory can help us expose and get reproved by the light come light and then there are other ways in which uh critical race theory is just imposing another kind of world of power mm -hmm. that we need yeah, to well, I, I think that one of, one of the things that this does where we're, we're struggling so hard with it is it's um, on the face of it because, because it, it, it cares not for um, universals, right? It cares not for individuality. Um, it, ten, it tends to be really hard to falsify it's unfalsifiable to, de to deny it is to bear witness to the truth of it. In other words, you know, how that goes. And so the only thing, the only thing ultimately you can do, and you know, you, you hear me, what I mean by this, you, you gotta, you gotta preach the gospel to it. Right. You know what I mean? A gentle listening ear, long suffering, you know me well, but you gotta preach the gospel to it because that the gospel explicates all things It deconstructs and reconstructs and exposes these things. 
But when we reduce discourse, one of the things that this doesn't like discourse very much, right? So if you, if I say to you, Will, I, I want to, I want to, I want to have a conversation with you, and and I hope to persuade you of certain certain things, maybe. To in, into the kind of the the maw of modernity that this falls into is, this guy has a position or, or a place of power, and what he wants to do is exert it on you. And so, so what we tend to do is say, now, what are the social dynamics at play here? Um, I can't exert that on Will, um, so on and so forth. And so it's really breaking down. I see it in class all the time, Will, even since you graduated, right? As soon as you say, like, so what do you guys see here? It gets really, really quiet. We've become really, really fearful um, to talk in front of this. Um, and I think those are the reasons. The worst thing you could ever be, right? The worst thing you can be in our culture is someone who would deny this and then be perceived as racist or sexist or something like that. And so I think that, you know, this is where the church is going to live into and really get a sense of, you know, what does it mean? What does it mean to carry a baptismal identity into the world? And what does it mean to be freely justified by Jesus Christ? And so I do not need to be worried about you justifying me constantly, right? Um, because if I do, I'm just I'm just a captive. I'm just I'm just enmeshed with the entire cosmos and every in every relationship, and I'm never free. I'm never free to be a person of the gospel. Wow, um, man, woo, doggy, this is great stuff. I'm, I love these conversations. So, okay, first thing I want to say is. Um, Stemming from what uh, Will was uh, just sharing and Deacon John was just sharing. And I made this comment in June, um, like several things I said in June, uh, where there was so much going on in all of our hearts and minds, it was a bit misunderstood. I'm going to say it again to you guys, because that's who I was talking to anyway. Is, um, go back to that Burkhoff quote, he talked about, you know, the true meaning. Like, we have to be able to articulate the true meaning. And what I want to say to you all and to your generation is, I do strongly believe that one of your works as... Uh, as, as gospel workers in our movement, those that may be moms and dads, um, those that may be deacons or priests, those that may be theologians, um, those who are teachers of our children and teachers of our youth. Okay, just like your generation, um, you're going to need a lot of time to work out how you articulate, and not just articulate, but minister, right? Incarnationally minister um, the true meaning of the gospel amidst... Um, these profound realities of race in America. And that's for most of us that be working in America. If you work in another country, you have to figure out their racial dynamics. Um, I'll just speak to ours right now. And as somebody who has spent nearly 30 years now, um, pointed by God and by God's design, working in the realm of sexuality and anthropology of sexuality, it's taken me 30 years to be able to finally say some of the things I've been trying to say for 30 years. It takes, it takes a long time because the, the false gospel is so profoundly pervasive. It's, it it has, enough, has some gospel in it, as John's just so beautifully said, but it's also false. It's so hard to speak into these things. And I've, I, I have banged my shins, you know, 50 different times trying to say it well. And um, I just had the courage to not say it perfectly um, and then have people correct me and then say it better the next time, you know what I mean? Um, so what I want to say to you all is you're going to have to have courage to build out the ministry of the gospel amidst incredible racial grief in our country that's very real, yeah. as well as racial deception that's very real. You have to have courage. You're going to have to be long-suffering and perseverant 
And look at it right now and say it's going to take me 20 to 30 years to eventually say what I hope I can say, but I'm going to start saying it now. I'm going to start writing about it now. I'm going to start working on sermons now um, for the true meaning uh, that Burkhoff talks about. And I want to just say to you guys, it, it takes a long time to get to these things. And it's, again, it's taken me. And when I say that, I'm not saying that I'm not going to work on these things with you. I'm all in with you. Um, and I'm going to give my best to preaching, articulating ministry in these realities as well. Um, but I don't have as much time as you guys do. I mean, none of us know how much time we have. But I want to encourage you in that. I do think this is one of the works for your generation that I want you to be doing. Um, and I want you to read all this stuff. And, and different ones, you have different callings within this too. So you're discerning your calling. But if you're working in America and you're working in our movement, we're working on this um, because it really matters, really matters. Multi-ethnic family deeply matters to our ministry and evangelism of the gospel. And if we're going to do multi-ethnic family gospel-wise, which we are, we're going to have to dig deeper and deeper in what Deacon John gave us a phenomenal sort of just opening survey on. So I'm, in, I'm jazzed around this, these issues that you guys know. I'm proud of you guys for stepping in and where you are. And I'm excited about the work you're going to do in other areas too. Um, but in this area, I'm excited. I'm excited about the churches you're going to plant. I'm excited about the churches you're going to plant. And and I'm, I'm depending on us all to get deeper, richer, multi-ethnic churches planted, um, but to do so within the gospel. And uh, we need uh, theologians like John helping us just think that way. So praise the Lord. Um, I see Mimi and Sebastian's pictures. So I think you guys are with us, which is wonderful. We're going to take a 10-minute break from, okay, there's Sebastian. Mimi, you here too? Um, wonderful. Okay. So I'm going to introduce you all at 11. So we're going to take a 10-minute break, get your tea or coffee or uh, do whatever you need to do. We'll start together um, at 11. Um, Mimi or Sebastian, do we have a, a video that we're going to start with? Am I, uh, do we have a Somos Familia video? I will show um, a, a little video. Okay, great. So, we'll, so I'll introduce us at 11. I want to just say a word about Sebastian and Mimi, um, mm -hmm. an incredible son and daughter of our movement and our diocese. And then you guys will take it from there. You'll each have about 35 minutes um, or so, and that'll leave 20 minutes or so at the very end for us to have a chat all together. So 10 minute break, see you guys back here at 11 sharp and, and we'll start. <laughs> 